Hi, I'm Madalika Sika, and this is 52 Weeks, 52 Books, 52 Women, the podcast. This week, a story of sudden wealth and the challenges it brings to a marriage, a family, and a neighborhood. When Anil Jha sells his website, he suddenly becomes a very wealthy man who gets hit with a severe case of affluenza. New money leads to a new house, new friends, and new circumstances to deal with. The book is The Windfall, and the author is Diksha Basu, and Diksha joins me now. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really glad to speak with you. Uh, so congratulations on the book, your debut novel. Um, and, you know, the first thing I wanted to ask you about uh, is that your book is about a growing breed in India, which is the newly wealthy. And I think that that's an India that probably a lot of Americans don't know much about. Why did you want to write about it? Well, you know, I grew up in uh, New Delhi in the 1990s, and there was this very visible explosion of wealth all around me, especially after the economy opened up. And it was very hard to avoid that. You saw it everywhere. And then we moved to America in the mid 90s. And then I sort of kept coming back to India. Every six months, we had our family based there. So my parents brought us back very often. And with the distance, I saw the changes even more clearly coming back every six months and seeing street corners change, seeing brand names come in. And it was very hard to ignore. And even though I wasn't consciously watching that, uh, I was just an adolescent at the time. Years later, when I started writing, that was the obvious topic that came to me because it, there was just so much material of a city and a country changing so fast. And I think it is something that, you know, I, I call what a lot of people may have their vision of India as being sort of dictated by an old version of National Geographic. Um, and they're right. maybe not quite as familiar with, you know, the extent to which we've had a growth in the U.S. of a house and have nots. Uh, I think that's been really evident in India in a very profound way. Absolutely. And, you know, it's not just the National Geographic representation, even a lot of the literature that makes it out of India about India, literature or films, or it tends to be... Uh, the two extremes, either the sort of the poverty porn or the big, lavish, colorful weddings. But there's this massive India in between that's been ignored in uh, pop culture. Right. And I think, you know, the, the jaws represent this. Um, they move from the neighborhood that they've lived in for a long time. Uh, that's a noisy, no nosy group of people who live in close, <laughs> close proximity to each other. Um, to the affluent, newly built enclave of Gurgaon, um, and that's supposed to represent a real change in how they live their lives. Um, and you flip the narrative a little, and um, they're sort of in competition in some way with their new neighbors, too, with uh, especially their neighbor next door, Mr. Chopra. Exactly. I think um, as Mr. and Mrs. Cha are moving across the city and across class lines, they're sort of having to navigate the language of new money. They're starting to figure out what the markers are of success, how you're supposed to be in this new world under these new circumstances. So it becomes a game of not just keeping up with the neighbors, but trying to be one step ahead of them, but not without quite knowing what those steps are and where the neighbors are. Right, because it's also new from them. And then, you know, there is this sort of game of one-upmanship uh, with the neighborhood uh, and the neighbors. Um, I thought uh, you, the sort of focus on ostentation on ostentatious demonstrations of wealth uh, was actually very humorous, but also uh, very 
poignant, I thought. Um, could you sort of talk a bit about some of the examples that you use in the book of that ostentatious, you know, extreme that uh, they encounter? Right. Well, um, at a at an actual materialistic level, their new neighbors turn out that uh, they have the dome of the Sistine Chapel painted in the foyer of their home. So at the materialistic <laughs> level, it's that. Um, and then there's the obvious markers like the cars people drive, etc. And the fact that the Jaws have custom ordered a couch from Japan that is embedded with some very uncomfortable Swarovski crystals. Which, <laughs> yeah, which uh, just sounds like the absolute extreme of ostentation to me. And, you know, it's interesting that they, um, you know, the, the things that you can see, uh, like a car or, you know, the furniture or even having a guard, but, you know, it was very funny to me, the Jaws uh, take a trip to the US to see their son who is studying uh, in Ithaca and the, it, Mr. Jaws trying to figure out a way to make sure that his neighbor knows that they're traveling business class. Right, right. Yeah, because that's what he's trying to figure out. And I, there's this, you know, we also are seeing that now because in our world, Mark Zuckerberg is not wearing brand name clothes. He's now known for the fact that he's always in jeans and this gray t-shirt. So what are the markers of wealth? How do people who are new to wealth, if they really want to show it? Now there's no clear rules about how to do so. It's not about wearing designer gowns and diamonds. I know. And, uh, you know, poor Mr. Jar, you kind of feel a little bad for him that he doesn't really know how to handle this new found wealth. Um, I hope so. <laughs> now you're making fun of these newly wealthy, but I think you're also providing a rather sort of um, bracing critique of what is happening in India right now with this newly created group of haves. Um, what, what's the point you're trying to get across there? You know, I'm actually hoping, first of all, not to be making fun of them, but to be look, making, well, you know, I hope to be making fun of everyone across class lines. I don't want to reserve my mockery for just the wealthy because I think everyone's fair play, number one. Uh, number two, I think, again, I'm hoping not to make a social critique. For me, fiction should serve to entertain. If it serves another purpose as a byproduct of that, that's fine and great. But I leave my um, my education to nonfiction, my entertainment to fiction is how I personally <laughs> like it. <laughs> and within that, I'm actually not sure there is a clear cut answer. I don't think wealth necessarily is destructive and I think it can be just the same as poverty can be destructive and poverty doesn't have to be destructive. I actually don't think there are black and white answers to these things. And that's one of the things I was hoping to explore is that it goes beyond money. It is so much more about human connections on both sides of the poverty line, if you will. Mm -hmm. It isn't necessary. It's about, it isn't necessarily saying that new money is destroying India because I don't think it is as simple as that. I think it's more about how smaller stories are getting affected by their changes and by the way the country's changing. And that's why I wanted to go into the perspective also of the guards of the buildings who are mm -hmm. obviously not the wealthy. They're protecting the homes of the wealthy, but they're not the wealthy. And they also get space on the page to have their experiences relate to us. So it isn't, I'm not actually trying to critique new wealth. I'm trying to just explore how it affects people on a very narrow, small, personal scale. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, talk about change in India. One of the sidebar stories is of a relatively young widow 
and a divorced man and their budding romance. Um, now that I think does say something new, uh, uh, something about the new India culturally and socially, does it not? I think so, and I hope so. I think there's more room at least, and I speak from a very, again, a small perspective in that I'm talking about urban elite in India. I'm not talking, I'm, I'm not making mass statements about the country. Right. It's too vast for that. Exactly. But in the urban elite, I think there is room for women to start making unconventional choices. That being said, I think it's just globally always still very difficult for women. I mean, let alone the fact that a lot of what's happening around the world is very regressive. Regardless of that, even at a personal scale, I think for women, we often can't win. And what makes me, what interests me most are the smaller stories, again, about how women who choose to do something different within their own social circles, how that affects them. And that can go both ways. So in Mrs. Ray's case, who is the character of the young widow that you mentioned, she is not defined by a male figure. There's no father, no husband, no son. And what happens in a society in which women are traditionally defined in terms of men when you don't have those relationships? That's what I wanted to explore with her. But what was interesting was at the same time that I was writing this book, I made some very traditional choices in my life in that I chose to get married. And mm -hmm. in my social circle of, um, again, you know, a certain elite urban social circle, because of the fact that weddings and marriages are seen still as a way to hold women down, there's this real pushback against getting married. There's a lot of domestic partnerships or relationships, but marriages are not necessarily being celebrated because um, we're still trying to find our footing as women who don't need to be defined by by husbands. However, when I chose to get married, I felt that it was harder for me to express enthusiasm to my social circle ah. because within that world, we were now not supposed to be getting married. Wow, that's fascinating. And so what interests uh. me is within social small circles, how women navigate doing something different. Mm -hmm. And uh, she, and you know, she is a widow. The lot of widows in India, regardless of your class, has never been very, um, you know, prominent. So it was sort of an interesting thing to focus on. Uh, and you know, also that the the man that she is having this budding romance with, it, it was more socially acceptable for him to, uh, for him to be seen as a widow rather than a divorce. Man. Is that giving away spoilers? I don't know if um, I want to go too far down that road. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll stop right there. But I think we we learned early on that that's right. that's his situation. Um, I think it again says something about uh, about the push and pull in India right now of what our cultural norms and how they're changing um yeah india's in such a fascinating place with all that right now i mean you just there's just so much going on and so much that's happening right now that's so horrifying and so shocking and so awful and at the same time these little pockets of um really progressive people and thought that are emerging out of a lot of what's happening that's very negative right it's a very sort of vibrant time in in a lot of ways uh, right for that kind of challenge now mrs Ja is uh you know the the newly affluent mrs Ja. she's really um kind of conflicted by this new wealth uh and studies you know tell us that money doesn't buy happiness um so sort of tell me about the research you did for her character and 
what she represents uh, in, in this story. Well, again, I think what is interesting for me is that these are not people climbing out of poverty to wealth. They're coming out of a very content middle-class lifestyle into wealth. So that change is in many ways smaller. This is not rags to riches. Right. So she, what it's, at what point, one of the things she says early on is at what point do you stop? At what point do you just set, live happily the way you're living? Do you keep aspiring or at some point you just enjoy day to day? And that was for me, she represented obviously the opposite of her husband who's constantly reaching, who's constantly aspiring, who's always looking at what the next step is. And for her, it's once you're happy, can that just be it? And that conflict between a married couple and the fact that they're coming at this from two completely different angles and what does the money mean for them? Yeah, and I actually liked the idea that you flipped that it was the men who were in this sort of competitive space of wanting to one-up each other. Um, you know, that's, you never see a lot of that actually. And no, you don't. And that's, you know, women are always pitted against each other. I'm so sick of that. (laughs) But I think men do it as much, if not more. And also there's something more entertaining and more sad about male bravado, isn't there? (laughs) Yes, definitely. Well, when, you know, when he's worried about not only uh, having a butler, but also talking about a Roomba vacuum and worrying about bed skirts, then you've definitely, <laughs> you've definitely flipped, flipped things around. Um, now, I know you don't, you didn't write this as a, you know, and I didn't read it as a sort of, you know, sweeping book about India. You can't make generalizations about a country that is so vast, that has so much going on, that has so many differences in, in class and culture and economics. But you know, I, I think for a lot of people, it, this may be the first or, you know, one of the few books they might pick up and read about uh, India. Um, and, you know, what, what do you hope that uh, it opens their eyes to? So I find in the book, I hope Delhi is definitely a distinct character and I love the city. I think it's a very complex city and I do want the city to be a real character in the book. However, I think and I hope that the story goes so much beyond just Delhi and India and there's something much more universal about the anxieties of uh, keeping up with the neighbors. I mean, there's a reason that's a phrase and there's a reason the Kardashians have now co-opted the phrase for themselves. And there's a reason that social media does as well as it does is because we're constantly looking towards other people. And I often wonder what I would want if I had no idea what anybody else wanted. And huh. that to me is something that I think is universal. And I don't know how many of us stop and think about that, but I think it's so universal that there are these subtle competitions and comparisons that dictate our lives. And that's why Twitter and Instagram do as well as they do, because we're looking at other people all the time. Right. And that's something that I think goes beyond national borders. And I hope that, that the readers get that. And also the world is becoming increasingly segmented and we're being taught to really be afraid of outsiders and the unknown and anything outside our immediate borders we're being taught to be afraid of and that's terrifying to me as someone who's grown up sort of a third culture child that is very frightening to me that we're being taught to be afraid of the other and I hope this sounds so pompous there's no way to say this modestly (laughs) but I hope like so much good fiction does uh, books can go beyond borders 
Uh, well, I agree with you. And I think, you know, for me, uh, what I loved about the book was its particularity, but also its universality. Um, and, you know, that to me is one of the joys of, of fiction. Um, and I hope that people take that away from the story. Author Diksha Basu, the book is called The Windfall. You can read about this and other great books by women on 52 Weeks, 52 Books, 52Women.com. Diksha, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me.